Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have given who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We thank you for recording this teaching for us and preserving it all these many years. Now, Lord, we ask that you'd be pleased to apply this word to our hearts this morning as we continue to study what Jesus is saying to us. So, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher and guide this morning, Lord, that we would truly hear from you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I think the best place to begin would be to review uh, where we have been. There's a few of us this morning who didn't hear last week's message. So, just a quick review. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus has made his way from the region of Galilee, and he has come down into the region of Judea. In verse 2, we see that there are large crowds are following him, and he is healing them. Uh, We've become accustomed to seeing uh, Jesus minister this way, and uh, it is in the context of this healing ministry that some Pharisees attempt to uh, entrap Jesus Uh, by throwing a a hotbed question at him. In verse 3, they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, They knew what they were doing. Uh, They're trying to weaken Jesus' constituency. Uh, It's certainly a form of heckling that's going on here. Uh, I think I'd made the uh, 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 reference to a number of years ago, I I saw R.C. Sproul speak in Pittsburgh. I think I shared this with you last week. Uh, And uh, at the end of the sessions, there was a QA and a time, and one person in the the audience threw one of these hotbed questions at Dr. Sproul. It was so obvious that that he was being heckled uh, that the crowd actually booed the question as the question was thrown at Dr. Sproul, there was a number of people that expressed displeasure with that question. I, I, I think we all knew how 
Dr. Sproul was going to answer that question, and we knew what position that was going to put him in. He nevertheless answered it anyway, and answered it very carefully and very gracefully. Uh, but this kind of thing is a form of persecution, and we see that it is happening here to Jesus, and if it happens to Jesus, we should expect no other than it will happen to us from time to time. The background behind this, as we saw last week, that there were two schools of thought in regards to divorce. Uh, one was probably what would have been called a conservative side and the other one a liberal side, uh, if you want to put it into a modern setting. But one school said that a man could divorce his wife if he found something indecent in her, uh, calling upon Deuteronomy 24, which we looked at last week. Uh, but this school of thought wouldn't go as far as to define what that indecency was. Whereas an opposing school would say you can divorce your wife <clears throat> for any indecency you find in her. And they went ahead and said that that indecency could be anything. Uh, if, you, if she burns your meal, uh, you can give her a certificate of divorce. If you uh, find a woman uh, that's more attractive, you could uh, divorce her and, and marry another. And that was the debate that was going on. It was, uh, divorce was hotly debated uh, in the first century, just like it is today. Uh, you know, as I shared last week, if you, were, you know, if you were candidating for a new church, I don't think Matthew 19 would be a wise choice of text to, uh, uh, to preach on. Uh, people have strong opinions about how this is understood, and they throw this question up there hoping to rope Jesus into one side of the debate or the other side of the debate. I don't think they could imagine that there was, that there, that there was another response. And as they try to trap Jesus, they, they find that they're miserably outwitted. Uh, Jesus doesn't take either side. He instead appeals to creation if you look at verses 4 through 6. I love what Jesus says first. He says, if you're not read, you know, uh, basically what he's saying to these folks who are spiritual leaders, they're, they're, they're pastors, they're rabbis. He's basically saying to them, fellas, don't you read your Bibles? Come on, we only need to get to chapter 2 here. Genesis 2. From the beginning... God made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, I think the Pharisees thought, okay, well, we still got him here. Well, let's throw a follow-up question here. Then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And I point your attention to the word command. So why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Last week we looked at that. Last week we read Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, which is being quoted here. And in that passage, Moses isn't commanding anyone to divorce anyone. He's merely allowing it. And as we developed that passage last week, we discovered that what Moses is really trying to do is he was trying to restrain the frivolous divorce that was taking place back in that day. Uh, so the, 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 the question reveals a deep-seated problem with their concept of marriage. A deep-seated pro problem. 
Moses isn't commanding anyone to divorce their wives. He's doing the opposite. Um, and Jesus says the allowance was simply due to the hardness of heart. To the hardness of heart. And then in verse 9, Jesus gave an exception. And we've come to call verse 9 the exception clause. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Um, here we learn that sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. Um, and we should understand that. We should accept that. Um, Jesus, again, is not commanding divorce. We need to understand. Jesus is not commanding. Uh, in fact, the, the, the real thrust of Scripture is hopes that reconciliation can be found. Uh, but sometimes that's not possible. And in cases when that's not possible, divorce is permitted. Now, last week I also added that the Apostle Paul adds another exception. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches that, that willful desertion is also grounds for divorce. Um, in, in that context, Paul is basically saying, listen, if a wife receives the gospel, becomes a believer, a follower of Christ, and her husband remains an unbeliever, as long as he's willing to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. But uh, if uh, he would decide that, you know, under these new circumstances, I'm no longer, I no longer desire to be married, then what Paul says is let him go. Uh, you're no longer bound. Uh, the word that's used in that passage is very important, the Greek word luo. Uh, you're loosened, you're released. Uh, she is then free. And the gender can be reversed on that. That applies to both parties. So uh, because of this, I stated last week that my personal position on divorce is, this, is the historical Protestant position. It's, divine, it's defined in our, our, our confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that sexual immorality and willful desertion are grounds for divorce when reconciliation has been unable to be obtained. Uh, we want to always strive to try to reconcile parties, but again, that is not always possible. Now, this brings us up to speed to our text here in verse 10. You know, the disciples are listening to what's going on here. They're listening to Jesus. And they bring up a very important statement in verse 10. They say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, Notice what they say next. It's better not to marry. Well, what, what is being said here? Um, well, what the disciples are basically saying is, wow. Uh, this seems to be much more binding than I thought. Uh, you mean if I find something indecent in her and uh, it doesn't include desertion or uh, sexual immorality, then I'm going to be stuck. If that's the case, then I think it'd be better not to get involved in this at all. Well, this, this reveals there's a problem with the disciples' understanding of marriage too, doesn't it? Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 11, he says, not everyone can receive this saying, what you fellows are saying here. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He goes on to say some strange things, I think, to us at first. 
verse 12, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Uh, the first thing that we ought to note here is that Jesus makes it clear that singleness is not given to every person. And I think that um, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 again helps us understand what Jesus is doing here. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians verses 1 and 2, uh, he seems to be elaborating on what Jesus is saying here uh, with these words. He says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And again, I think this helps us understand where Jesus is going here. Uh, why would he be bringing up eunuchs? Uh, he says there are eunuchs who have been made so from, who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made by, uh, by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Jesus is referring to here is the temptation to sexual immorality. And it makes sense because that's in the context. Uh, the context here is sexual immorality. And what he's saying is very clearly that singleness is not for every person. But singleness is for some people. Uh, there are some people, uh, singleness is actually a gift that God gives uh, to some people. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, John Stott as a famous example. Um, John Stott was an uh, incredibly faithful pastor uh, throughout the, the 20th century. Uh, he just recently went to be with the Lord a few years ago. And if you see any books with um, John Stott uh, as the author, buy it and take it home and cherish it. Uh, he is, uh, of all the authors that I read, he's among my favorite. Uh, he devoted himself to kingdom service. Never married, he decided not to marry. He was given the gift of singleness and devoted himself to king kingdom service and accomplished many things that wouldn't have been possible had he had the, um, the duties and responsibilities of a family. Uh, and that's how God calls people sometimes. And, and don't get the impression necessarily that the gift of singleness is only given to missionaries or to pastors. It's, uh, I don't think that's really true. I think sometimes the gift of singleness is given to people in all kinds of stations. Uh, and when that's given to them, uh, they really are free uh, to do a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily be free to do uh, if you had uh, a wife or a husband at home uh, waiting for you. And I think I should add that uh, this is not necessarily a higher ground. Sometimes people will think of singleness as the higher road. Um, I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, reason with me for a minute, and uh, perhaps you'll agree with me. If we say that singleness is a higher road, well, then what are we saying about marriage? Uh, marriage must be somewhat underneath singleness. And I think if we take that route, we're diminishing uh, marriage. And I think we want to be careful not to do that. Uh, marriage is a gift, too. Uh, I, I think we should hold them both up here. In fact, that's really the burden of the 
rest of this message this morning is to really show uh, the blessedness of what marriage is. Uh, a couple of points, and I won't be long. I don't know how long my voice is going to hold up here. Uh, but the, f- the first point, really, uh, Jesus makes use of in the text in verses 4 through 6, that we see that marriage is not a man-made institution, is it? Uh, God creates Adam, and then he creates Eve. And God officiates the very first wedding. Uh, It must have been some wedding. Um, Imagine having God uh, uh, officiating your wedding uh, himself. That had to have been absolutely incredible. And for that matter, Adam and Eve uh, living and breathing in a blessed state. Um, uh, They did enjoy a blessed state uh, in a blessed world. Uh, where sin hadn't taken place yet and the consequences of sin. There, there, were, uh, there were no hard hearts at that point. Uh, this had to be uh, incredible. Um, one of the things that I shared at Anthony and Jennifer's wedding yesterday was um, um, something that I sometimes share at weddings and I, I find it's, just find it to be so thought-provoking is that before there were any hospitals or there were any schools or there was any government, uh, there was marriage. And I, I asked the, 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 uh, uh, those who were assembled, I, I said, ladies, how many, how many moms do we have out there? You know, if, you're a, if you're a mom, raise your hand. And a whole bunch of hands went up in the air. I said, now, am, am I off base or... You know, um, when your children skin their knees or when they skin their elbow, what do you, what do you naturally want to do? You have this natural inclination to want to heal them, don't you? I mean, that's why little boys cry for their moms when they skin their knees. <laughs> that's just something that, we, that God has built into us. Mom is going to, she's going to fix it. She's the healer. Let's think about the hospital. I don't think it's a far stretch to say that that hospital actually is, is, is a reflection of this. It is derived from this, isn't it? What about the schools? I mean, parents, I mean, if you're a parent, you've got the duty of teaching children and training children. You know, the school certainly, the school has certainly come from that. There's no question. With government, I want to be a little careful because God has ordained government. We get that teaching from Romans and other places. He ordains leaders. There's no leadership that he hasn't ordained. But we still see a reflection in government. You know, at, at the wedding yesterday, I asked the fellas, I said, fellas, how many of your dads? They didn't want to raise their hand, you know, too. Come on, guys, get the hands up in the air. They kind of did this, you know. Um, well, I see a little bit of this going on. I guess there's a lot of dads out there. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. You have this natural inclination to want to protect and care for your family, don't you? I mean, if you don't, something's really wrong. And we think about government, you know, and what it's supposed to be. Don't think about what it is, but what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to protect the welfare 
the best interests of the people. Well, you can see the reflection, can't you? And I'm laboring at this point because it lends into the next point that I want to make, is that marriage is fundamental to society. Uh, it's the building block. Uh, it's the cinder block. Uh, it, it is the bricks. It's the foundation. In Genesis 2, in verse 24, we're told that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You have that phrase, one flesh. What does that mean? Well, if we think of that as sexual union, we're, we're right. But if we think of it only as sexual union, well, then we're narrowing it way too far. Because this idea of one flesh is really the idea of the creation of a new family unit. Yesterday afternoon at about 5.20, a new family unit was created. As Anthony and Jennifer shared their commitment to one another before God and the witnesses. And I made it a point to uh, share uh, some experience from my own life. Uh, uh, growing up, uh, my best friend, I, if someone would have said, who's your best friend growing up? I, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have taken me two seconds. I wouldn't have had to think about it at all. I said, my brother's my best friend. You know, Tommy's my best friend. Well, you know, yesterday as I shared at the wedding, I said, you know, my best friend's present with us today. People were kind of looking at me. And uh, I said, her, her name's Tammy. See, a new family unit is created. And when a new family unit is created, I mean, it radically changed things. It, new boundaries have to be established. I went on to say that, um, that this has in no way, shape, or form diminished the relationship I have with my brother. My love for him is love for me. We've just figured it out. You know, we've figured out how it works. He's married, and I'm no longer his best friend either. We're still just as close as we've ever been. It's the beginning of a new family unit. And when you have, when you have strong family units, you have a strong society. When you have weak family units, you have a weak society. And it's no accident that one of the things the evil one is constantly going to do is he's constantly going to attempt to destroy the family unit. And we see this going on all around us. It's constantly trying to destroy that family unit. Destroy the dad. Make him look like a bumbling fool. Exalt the woman to place of leadership. That'll destroy a marriage right now. That'll destroy a marriage. Make the kids out to be the boss. Kids aren't supposed to be the boss. You see all the commercials where the kid has it all figured out and the parents are a couple of fools. Those are evil commercials. And we might chuckle at them, 
But I don't even think we should do that. We should see them for what they are. These destroy families. Children are immature, and they need to be raised in wisdom, or they're going to remain immature. If we haven't learned anything from our study in the book of uh, Proverbs, we should be learning that. Constantly the father is pleading with the son to seek wisdom, to obtain wisdom, to get wisdom. Over and over again. Why is he doing that over and over again? Because it's a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of time. Children aren't in a position to be boss. Children need to be children. Dad needs to be the boss. That's the biblical imperative. And when we deviate from that, we fall into sin, and we pay the consequence in our families. But if we have strong families, we have a strong society. If we have weak families, we have a weak society. One of the reasons our society is so weak today is look at the devastation of our families. But we can see here that when we do find a strong marriage, we find a gem, don't we? It's a real blessing. You know, kids love strong marriages. Kids love that stuff. They like to hang out at the house where the strong marriage is. They like to be at the house where the father loves his wife and where his wife respects him. That's where they like to hang out. They intuitively know. The kids intuitively know when there's problems in the home, don't they? It's a gem. Marriage is not simply for procreation. There are some who teach that marriage exists simply to fill the earth and multiply. It's, marriage is much more than that. I don't want to labor on that point because I don't think there's um, anybody here that really believes that. No, marriage is much more than procreation. It's companionship. Uh, marriage is companionship. You know, in the book of Proverbs, there's an important comment on marriage. In chapter 2, we are told that the adulteress, by way of her adultery, quote, forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. There's two important uh, aspects there. One is companion and the other one is covenant. By her adultery, she is forsaking the companion of her youth, that is, her husband. And she forgets the covenant of her God, that is, the vows that she has made uh, with her husband. And we see that marriage is covenant companionship. Uh, two very, very important concepts. Companionship speaks of an intimate friendship. An intimate friendship. And covenant speaks of a solemn promise. That's the idea expressed in the wedding vows. You know, when a man promises to take his wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, love and to cherish till uh, death do impart, that, that, that's the covenant promise. Uh, those promise are, promises are exchanged with one another and uh, the wedding ring is a, is a, uh, a symbol of that, of that promise that has been made. So it, marriage is sometimes rightfully called a, a covenant of companionship. 
covenant of companionship. And lastly, the last thing, marriage reflects Christ's relationship with his church. And in Ephesians 5.25, Paul charges the husband. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's why I chose our call to worship this morning, because God is he's referring to himself as the husband of the church. God so loved his church that came in the person of Jesus Christ. He loved her uh, so much that he goes to the uh, cross. And Jesus, as per his human nature, uh, dies on that cross uh, at the altars of his justice in order to cleanse who? In order to cleanse his bride. You know, at weddings, oftentimes I will ask Ladies, I'll say, ladies, I want to ask you a question. How many of you would not want to be married to a man that loves you so much that he looks to Jesus every day so that he can love you in a sacrificial way? That he would be willing to step in front of a bus for you. Is there anyone present here who wouldn't want a husband like that? Then I do the opposite. I said, ladies, tell me, how many of you wouldn't want to be married to a, a woman that looks to Jesus every day to learn how to respect you, to learn how to love you? You know, there's a supernatural beauty to a man that, that loves Jesus. You can oftentimes see it, can't you? You know, when a man loves Jesus, it's just a glow. And the same thing's true of women. When, when women love Jesus, there's this beauty, this, uh, this inner beauty. Uh, you know, all of us, we're getting older, and as we get older, sometimes um, we do what we can, but sometimes things just aren't as beautiful as they used to be. But if we're cultivating our relationship with Christ... There's a beauty that can be fostered and it can be fanned into flame and it can so surpass any beauty that we've ever, that we've ever had. I, 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 when I was doing pulpit supply work, I was always amazed at, at how faithful God is to always dispense a couple of folks like that in every congregation. Uh, oftentimes, I would see women in, uh, in it as I'm preaching, you can sometimes see it as you're making eye contact with people. And I would see a, a woman, usually in their 80s, and I would see that glow. When I'd say certain things, I would look in that direction because I would know that there would just be this big glow. The more you praise Christ, the more they glow. And it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And it's present in fellows as well who love Jesus. And there'll come a day when that beauty will be matched with a body that is just as glorious as that beauty. And won't that be magnificent? But what we want to see here uh, in conclusion is that marriage is to be an earthly model of the union between Jesus and his church. And for that, 
uh, as Christians, we want to try to make our marriages as strong as we can make them, and we want to help others uh, make their marriages as strong as they can be made. So marriage is ordained by God. It's an institution ordained by Him. It's the foundation of society. It's more than mating. It's covenant companionship, and it's to reflect the intimacy and commitment that Christ has for His church. All to say, marriage is a blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you both for singleness and for marriage. We thank you for both of them. They're gifts given by your hand. And Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would come to understand more and more of what our marriages are to be, uh, more and more of what marriage is, and that by that, Lord, we would come to understand more and more uh, of what we are as a church to our husband, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So teach us these things, Lord, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, amen.